But hey, you can have a little fun in the house of God, right? And, uh, I appreciate all of you coming out tonight for our Wednesday evening service as our pastor and uh, his wife is out in Pensacola for a much-needed uh, vacation. And uh, keep uh, praying for Pastor Tony and Dawn as they are out there. And uh, I am just uh, humbled that he would allow me to come and to preach in his absence and uh, to uh, stand behind this sacred desk and preach the word of God. So I really do uh, appreciate that. Don't forget, Sunday we'll be here again uh, all day. So I want to invite you to come on out uh, this Sunday. I believe that's June the 11th, if I'm not mistaken. Is it that this Sunday, June 11th? And so, uh, hey, invite someone to come on out with you, amen? Invite a lost person. Invite some friends, family to come on out uh, to East Bay Baptist Church so that they can hear the preaching of God's word and get saved, amen? Because you know we're living in the last days, right? And, and you know that Jesus Christ is coming sooner rather than later. But, you know, I was, I was asking the Lord during my Bible and prayer time, uh, Lord, what would you have to preach for Wednesday night? And uh, despite all these notes, Brother Tom, on prophecy messages that I've had over the years, God wanted me to talk about a subject that I believe is very relevant, oh, yeah. and it's very, very important, and Christians need to be aware that churches are being destroyed, not from without. Churches are being destroyed from within. If you are teaching a bad doctrine, something that goes beyond the scripture, it is categorized as a doctrine of devils. It's a doctrine of demons. And that's why I believe it's important in these last days in which we live that you and I be astute students of God's word. What does that mean? You must study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the reason why Christians today don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth is because we are not studying. We're not getting our doctrine from this book. We're not getting our doctrine from the man of God when he stands behind this sacred desk every Sunday and every midweek service. We need to be fed the word of God. We need good doctrine. Amen. Yeah. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 2. What does Solomon say? For I give you good doctrine. Forsake ye not my law. But if you are getting bad doctrine, it's going to lead to other unfortunate circumstances. And in all my travels across these United States, Brother Tom, I have seen churches destroyed from within. Not only churches destroyed from within, but family breakups, friendships destroyed over one particular doctrine. That's why tonight I want to talk about dangerous doctrines, the chaos of Calvinism. Now, you probably could say, well, Brother Rosado is probably going to talk about Russia tonight, Iran, Israel, the ten horns of Daniel chapter 7, the beast out of the sea. God told me to talk about this tonight. And that's exactly what I am going to do. You need to be familiarized with this false doctrine that we categorize as heresy. That's what it is, folks. It is absolute heresy, the so-called tulip. T-U-L-I-P. So I want to encourage you tonight to please pay very good attention. Amen? Shut your cell phones off. Put it on silent. Do what you need to do. Take down some notes and even look at the PowerPoint that I'm going to show you tonight so that when it's all said and done, you will have somewhat of an idea how to answer these people who are involved in this, this heresy, this false doctrine. So uh, that, that is my prayer tonight. So before we, uh, uh, before we do that, uh, don't forget to pray for me as I leave for Israel on June the 20th for my 34th trip to the Holy Land. And uh, we're going out there to carry out the 54th Israel Gospel Outreach. That's uh, Dr. Todd Baker and myself without any groups or anybody else. Just him and I going out there. And we're going to be going out there and sharing the gospel with Israeli Jews and with Israeli uh, Arabs. We have complete Hebrew Bibles waiting for us at our hotel uh, in Netanya, overlooking the beautiful Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea uh, in the Bible. And uh, we're going to be hitting it right there, going to shopping malls in Tel Aviv, Netanya, Tiberias, Haifa, 
Nazareth and then ended off in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, wherever the Lord opens the door, we go one-on-one with the Jewish people, one-on-one with the Arabs. We don't leave out the Arabs. Amen? Because for God so loved the world. See, that, that's contradictory to the tulip doctrine. For God so loved the world. They even try to uh, redefine the word world. Amen? World means everyone in it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Dr. Baker and I are going out there. He's watching live tonight from Dallas. Uh, Dr. Baker and I are going out there 13 days sharing the gospel with the Jewish people and the Arab people. After our day of evangelism, Dr. Baker and I will find a biblical location, set up our video camera, and we will teach uh, Bible and Bible prophecy right from that location, upload it to uh, Facebook and my YouTube channel, so that way you can check it out back home. So I am looking forward uh, to going out there. So please pray for us for June the 20th to July the 3rd, and if you even want to get involved in helping to support that, uh, that would be greatly um, appreciated. And don't forget our Bible Prophecy Conference coming up uh, next month. I'm looking forward to that. That will be Friday, Saturday, and then we're going to be having that all day Sunday. Again, I want to encourage you, invite someone to come out, amen, a co-worker, family, friend, especially lost people, amen. That's our target is lost people so that we can win the loss at any cost. Again, that's contradictory to... Calvinism. Contradictory to the tulip, T-U-L-I-P. What I want you to do right now is take your Bibles. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you will, please. 1 Timothy chapter uh, number 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verse number 1. Now, you're going to notice Paul the Apostle says what's going to happen, what the Holy Spirit is is expressing uh, in these last days in which we live prior to that next main event we call the rapture of the church. Paul is warning about false teachers who will penetrate the church in these last days. And we need to be careful with these false teachers that they don't walk through the doors of Bible-believing churches today. It only takes one troublemaker to gum up the works. It doesn't take a group. It takes one person to cause division within the church. You remember what, what Solomon said in uh, Proverbs 6, uh, 16 through 19, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imagination, feet that be swift to run in mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and here's the seventh one, the seventh one that God said sticks my craw, he that soweth discord among brethren. That's exactly what we see going on with this particular group over here. Now, notice what uh, 1 Timothy 4 and verse number 1. Make sure i got the uh, transition uh, clicker here. Notice what Paul is saying here. Now the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, clearly, unambiguously, that in the latter times or last days, that's where we are now, last days, some, not all, but some, shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits or deceiving spirits and doctrines of devils, doctrines of demons. They're going to be speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidden to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be, to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Thank God we know the truth. Amen. Why? Because of the doctrine that we get in verse number 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith, and of what doctrine? There it is right there. For I give you good doctrine, Proverbs 4.2. In good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained or carefully followed. Let's have a word of prayer. This evening, Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, so much for the free gift of eternal life. The free gift that is available to all men, women, red, yellow, black, white. Everyone is precious in your sight, Lord. You died on the cross for the sins of both Jew and Gentile. You died on the cross for the sins of all humanity. And you offer, Lord, that free gift of eternal life. Salvation is sufficient for all, but it is efficient for those who by faith call upon the name of the Lord.
And so, Father, I pray that you would bless those that are here tonight. Help us to pay attention. Help us, Lord, to look at the scriptures, to study, to show thyself approved unto God. And I pray you bless those watching via live stream. Be with my wife, Patty, tonight, Lord. Uh, she's been under the weather, uh, not feeling well. I just pray that your hand be upon her uh, right now and just touch Patty, strengthen her, and give her grace at this time. Uh, those in this church, dear Lord, that are going through some form of health issues, praying that your hand be upon them right now. And, Father, once again, if there is someone here tonight and they do not have the assurance of going to heaven when they die, the good news is that there is a Savior that loves them and died for their sins and offers them the free gift of eternal life. So, Father, may you now be glorified in everything that is said and done. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen and amen. So, folks, as we draw closer to the next main event that we call the rapture of the church, we will continue to see an increase of doctrinal deceptions within the church that Paul classifies as doctrines of devils, doctrines of demons. And Brother Chris, I never thought I would see the day when churches are being destroyed, not from without. They're being destroyed from within. Families being broken up, friends refusing to speak with each other anymore because of this doctrine, because of this tulip, because of this Calvinism. And I see a very dangerous trend within the church of these doctrines of devils or demons, if you will. And they are infiltrating the church by and large all across the United States of America with this Calvinism. This doctrine has caused serious damage within the church today. A couple of years ago, I had a couple on my Israel tour. We were at Magdala, where Mary Magdala was from. And we were at the remains of a 2,000-year-old synagogue that they uncovered maybe about 10 years ago or so. No doubt Jesus visited that particular synagogue right there. And uh, one of the gentlemen approached me, a dear friend of mine from Fairhaven, Massachusetts, and he said, Brother August, going to take you to the side for a minute. I'm like, well, yeah, and I knew something was, was, was wrong. I'm like, what, what's going on, brother? He said, can you please pray for my wife and I? I said, yeah. Well, I said, what's up? He says, we haven't seen our grandkids in a long time now. I said, okay, any reason why? He said, well, our daughter and our son-in-law will not allow us to see the grandkids until we embrace Calvinism. Talk about using your kids as a pawn to force somebody to embrace a doctrine that is heretical. Don't tell me that's of God. That is not of God. Many of you remember our pastor, our former pastor, Dr. Jeff Amsbaugh. He said a Calvinist once told him that he could not tell definitely to his son that God loves him. I cannot say definitely that God loves my son because I don't know if my son is part of the elect or not. How can anyone make a statement like that to their kids? Again, folks, don't tell me that that's of God. I have a hard time believing that. And they call it Calvinism simply because of this man right here, John Calvin, who was born July 10, 1509, and he died May 27, 1564. Now, although his writings declined in 1609, his belief and his influence began to revive around the early 19th century, and it is very, very popular today. The thing with this guy, Calvin, is that he was indoctrinated into humanism. And that humanism warped his theology. Even Presbyterian scholars will tell you that Calvin, this man, was infatuated with humanism and with humanistic scholars. Calvinism can also be defined as reformed theology. These Reformed theologians always speak of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, and yet they warp that term into nothing more than a man-made system rather than allow the Bible to be its best own interpreter. I emphasize this everywhere I preach. You must allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense or you will end up with nonsense. 
That goes for the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and especially eschatology, the doctrine of last things or what we would call uh, Bible prophecy. In terms of this Calvinism, this tulip, it was invented by humans. It's substantiated by humans, and it is enforced by humans. One is indoctrinated into Calvinism. No one finds Calvinism by personal Bible study. One is educated into it. One is indoctrinated into it. Why is it today when you see all these commercials of same-sex unions, LGBTQ, whatever, you see it in the media on commercials for a chocolate bar or some type of a medicine, even in the public school systems. Why? They want to indoctrinate us. They want us to drop our biblical convictions and to embrace a lifestyle that the Bible clearly calls an abomination. No one finds Calvinism from personal Bible study. One is indoctrinated or they're educated into that system. Good, wholesome Bible doctrine, ladies and gentlemen, will not destroy churches. Good, wholesome Bible study will not destroy families and friendships, but bad doctrine will. If it's not of God, that means it's coming from who? Satan. What did Jesus say in John 10.10? The thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and destroy. That's what Satan does, right? He's a thief. He steals, he kills, and he destroys. But what did Jesus say I came to do? I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Satan kills. Jesus Christ gives life. Calvin was responsible for many deaths, and the guy was just an outright murderer. He was responsible for 57 executions, 75 banishments. He even ordered the beheading of a young child for striking his parents. Had a young child beheaded for striking. This this guy had so much blood on his hands. But Calvin's most known atrocity was the execution of Michael Servetus, sanctioned by John Calvin. And what was Michael Servetus' crime? He had a theological disagreement with Calvin, and Calvin had him executed. John Calvin violated the word of God and the spirit of Christian love. I mean, whatever happened to, why don't we agree to disagree and still love one another as believers, right? That's not the case with these individuals. If you, if you look at uh, what Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. We wouldn't know that in the church today if our life depended on it. Because all I see today is Christians attacking one another, belittling one another, besmirching one another over doctrinal issues. I'm talking personal attacks. Again, don't tell me that that is of God. And unfortunately, Calvinists operate, Brother Tom, under the same vindictive spirit when you disagree with their theology. This dangerous doctrine and spirit have entered even into some of our independent fundamental Baptist circles today. That's the reason why we must study God's word so that we can differentiate what is good doctrine and what is false doctrine. Dr. Jeff Ansbaugh told the story of a seminary student who transferred from another school to the school that Pastor Ansbaugh was at. This student completed all of his work course from another Baptist cemetery that was enamored with Calvinism. And when it came time to to present his dissertation, he was denied his dissertation because he refused to embrace the doctrine of Calvinism after completing all of his coursework and paying thousands and thousands of dollars in tuition. But it didn't end there. That same seminary banished the student and his reputation was murdered. His reputation was slandered by these same people. What was his crime? He refused to embrace Calvinism. Again, 
One is educated, indoctrinated into Calvinism, and not by self-study of the Word of God. And folks, these Reformed theologians will, will say that, you know something, you Christians who are non-Calvinists, you're ignorant because you haven't come into a deeper knowledge of God's Word. You're not part of the enlightened ones. You are the ignorant ones. That's like the Mormons. And Chris, you and I have dealt with Mormons uh, in the past. That's like the Mormons saying, well, if you want to understand the truth about Mormonism, just seek God and you'll feel that burden in the bosom. It's not about feeling, amen. Right. Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God yeah. through our Lord Jesus. It's not about feeling. It's not about that so-called burning in the bosom or being the enlightened ones with the deeper knowledge or the, the educated ones. That is absolute nonsense. Amen? Paul, Listen, Paul the Apostle warns of that type of arrogancy. How do I know that? He says in um, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Now as touching or concerning things offered unto idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity or love what? Edifieth. Paul says love edifies. He puts love over knowledge. Remember what Paul said? He, Paul said, I can have faith to move mountains. I can have faith to do this and to do that. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. I am am nothing. It's nothing but arrogancy. And God hates pride and he hates arrogancy, especially when it's coming from his own people. Again, in a nutshell, Calvinism is nothing more than Reformed theology. When I see the name Reformed Church, Brother Tom, I run for the hills, man. I have nothing but red flags flying everywhere and churches like that should be avoided at all costs. Because these same guys hate dispensationalism. Historically speaking, Baptists have always been dispensationalists. Why? They distinguish between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. Dispensationalists look at the word of God for its plain sense interpretation. Looking at it grammatically, historically, contextually, and literal interpretation. Dispensationalists, they differentiate between Israel and the church. Neither usurp the other. But these guys in Reformed theology, or also called covenant theology, they make no distinction whatsoever. And they say that God has replaced Israel with the church. I'm reminded of this man, C.I. Schofield, and what he said concerning dispensationalism. He, says, he said this, and I quote, A dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. So God would establish a dispensation, and he would expect man to abide by that dispensation. But when man failed that dispensation, then God would come up with another dispensation or another economy. And, you know, Baptists, you know, some might disagree on the number of dispensations, but they all agree that dispensationalism is a valid hermeneutic in the Word of God. Hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation. Who's speaking? Who's he speaking to? What is he speaking about? Reformed theology sees no distinction between Israel and the church, and they adopt the allegorical means of interpretation and believe that the church has replaced Israel in what we would call replacement theology. Let me tell you something about replacement theology. That is an anti-Semitic doctrine. It is right from the very pits of hell. And yet you got some Christians that are involved in this doctrine, some seminaries that are involved in this doctrine, and these reformed guys, these covenant theologian guys are involved with that as well. Even their doctrine of salvation is muddied in reformed theology. The doctrine of salvation called the doctrine of soteriology, Bible prophecy, eschatology, uh, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, hamartiology, the doctrine of sin, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, theology, the doctrine, all of that is muddied within their system of theology. Again, they make no distinction 
between the national election of Israel and the ecclesiastical election of the church. They love using Romans 9. They love using Romans 10, Romans chapter 11. But those three uh, chapters deal with Israel and Israel alone. Romans chapter 9 deals with Israel's past, the promises and the covenants that God made with the Jewish people, which Paul said are without repentance or irrevocable. You don't believe me? Read Romans chapter 11 and verse number 29. Then Israel past, I mean, excuse me, Israel present, that's Romans chapter number 10. They are in a state of unbelief. That's why I go out there. That's why I share the gospel with Jews and Arabs out there in Israel. Romans chapter 10 is Israel present. They're in a state of unbelief. And Romans chapter 11 is Israel future. All Israel shall be saved. Paul was a rabbi, was he not? Paul was a Jew. And as a rabbi, he is not discussing predestination of individuals to salvation in any of those chapters. It's not there. It's all Israel. Look at it in context. You must look at the chapters in context. Nowhere in those chapters does Paul talk about heaven, hell, or life beyond the grave. Dr. Harry Ironside uh, said this concerning uh, those chapters there. This is, this is what he said. Nowhere in this section of Romans does Paul discuss individual salvation and life beyond the grave, but rather speaks of God's dealings with nations historically and dispensationally. Romans 9, Israel past, God's covenant promise to them. Romans 10, Israel present, they're in a state of unbelief because they still reject Jesus as the Messiah. Romans chapter 11, Israel future, all Israel shall be saved. That happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ back to this earth when he makes Israel the head of the nations and Jerusalem the capital of planet earth during the millennial kingdom at that time. You must be careful with the so-called pick and choose theology. Reformed theology avoids context. They pick and choose what they want to believe rather than apply a, pro a proper biblical hermeneutic. Hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation. Again, who's speaking? Who's he speaking to? What is he speaking about? And Calvinists love to seize on Acts chapter 13, verse 48, at least the last half of that verse. As many as were ordained to eternal life believe. So they'll say, see, it says it right there. God chose who's going to heaven, and God chose who is going to hell. But again, you've got to look at it in context, amen? Acts chapter 13, in context, is referring to the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles. Because the gospel first went to who? The Jewish people. Who were the first Christians? The Jews. Up until Acts chapter 10, when the first Gentile convert to Christianity gets saved, his name is Cornelius. Chris, I take my tour groups to Caesarea, right where that event took place in Acts chapter number 10, where Peter leaves Joppa, today called Jaffa or Yafo in Hebrew. It's a suburb of Tel Aviv. He goes all the way to Caesarea to preach to this Gentile. He gets saved, and now Gentiles are coming into the church. And even the council at Jerusalem had a hard time believing that at first. But when, you know, the, the Peter and all of them went and they, they, they talked with the council in uh, the church in Jerusalem, this is what they said in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Then hath God also granted unto the Gentiles the gift of eternal life. Now, it's not just limited to the Jews anymore. It's Jews and Gentiles. That's all Acts 13, specifically in verse 38, is talking about. So what is this, this acronym? There it is right there. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed they were ordained or granted eternal life. It has nothing to do with pick and choose salvation. It has nothing to do with that at all. Wow, that really jumped on me here. So what is this tulip? Well, T-U-L-I-P. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. We're going to really briefly, very briefly, go through this TULIP acronym right now, okay? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. So let's look at 
T, total depravity. Calvinists love to use Romans chapter 3 and verse number 11. There is none that seeketh after God. To them, that proves nobody has a choice in their salvation. Now, do I believe that man is totally depraved? Well, of course I believe man is totally depraved, okay? But not to the point where he is incapable of calling upon the name of the Lord. Incapable of making a choice. All Romans 3.11 says is that man in his sinful nature rejects God. That's a choice, ladies and gentlemen. In his sinful nature, rejects God. Calvinists believe that God comes out of nowhere and zaps a person with salvation with no belief or no repentance whatsoever. In other words, man becomes born again to believe rather than believe to become born again. So what they're doing is they're putting the cart before the horse. So that would contradict if man is incapable of seeking God. Brother Chris, wouldn't that contradict Isaiah 55, 6? Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. If man is incapable of seeking God, what do you do with this verse? That's as plain as the nose on your face, Amen. Or, or what do you do with Jeremiah 29, 13? And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. What do you do with Acts chapter 4, uh, 17, verse 27? That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Now, faith in Calvinism is anathema. There's no such thing as faith or repentance. But yet, Hebrews eleven six 6 tells us this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God, not God coming to him, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder to them that diligently seek him. It's right there. Or what about John chapter 1 and verse number 9? That was the true light talking about Jesus. That was the true light which lighteth some men. Every man that cometh into the world. Who are in the world today? Just believers? Believers and? Unbelievers. That is every man on the folks. That's universal. Right? That's not a universal church. Someone's going to try to argue. I'm not talking about a universal church. They'll try to always make something up to, to, to justify this doctrine. But that is universal. Jesus Christ was that universal light. To light every man that comes into the world. Another one for you would be um, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. God said, I love them that love me. And those that seek me early shall find me. If man doesn't have a choice, then when Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his day, this is what he told them. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And ye will not. That's a choice right there. They refused Jesus' invitation. They refuse to come to the Lord. So that right there, folks, is a choice. Man is capable of choosing in this matter. Listen, if man is incapable of seeking God, then why is God asking us to do things that we're incapable of doing? When he says over and over and over again, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, search for me, find me. So we know that their interpretation of total depravity is nothing but a farce. What about unconditional election? Many of these reformed guys will go to Ephesians chapter 1 to try to prove that God in eternity past uh, uh, chose individuals to be saved and the rest of the world to go to hell. As I said, repentance and faith are unacceptable. 
to Calvinists. They seize on the word predestined or predestination. What does biblical predestination mean? What does it mean to be predestined? Just go to the Bible, folks. The Bible gives you the definition of it. Don't, don't go to these guys over there in these reform circles. What did Paul say? What, what is the predestination? Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be what? Conformed into the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There's nothing in there about salvation or justification. This is post-salvation here. As we continue to live our lives, as we progress for the Lord, we are continually being sanctified, amen, to be what? Conformed. We're predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That is not saying that God in the past chose some to go to heaven and some to That's not even in Romans chapter number 8. There's no connection there. What? We, 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 we're looking at things that are not even there. Paul never uses the phrase in Ephesians, God's love for us, but rather our love for God. Predestination, folks, is twofold. Positively, we are elected to holiness. Negatively, we are elected without blame. The result of our election is adoption as sons and daughters. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 states that we were predestined unto the adoption of children. It has nothing to do with who God picked and who we picked not. Adoption in Bible times has nothing to do with one coming into the family, but with rights and privileges of sons who are already in the family. So the election of Ephesians chapter 1 has nothing to do with justification, but sanctification and glorification as we are progressively conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot connect predestination and justification. The Bible makes no connection, no connection whatsoever. What is this limited atonement garbage? You want to know what it is to me, brother? It's repulsive. Limited atonement is repulsive, it's heresy, and it's unscriptural. That Jesus died only for some, he did not die for all. What's my definition of all, brother? All means all, and not all, but all means all. <laughs> <laughs> all means all, and that's all all means. Jesus Christ died for the sins of all. Salvation is sufficient for all, but it's efficient. For those who call upon the name of the Lord. If limited atonement is true according to the Calvinists, then what do they do with 1 John 2 2? And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, the saved, but also the sins of the whole world, the unsaved. Right there alone puts to bed, destroys limited atonement. This would also contradict 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of truth. We also see in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. The saved, amen. All men, unbelievers, to save those that believe. So limited atonement is nothing more than false doctrine. Calvinists love to redefine words. They'll look at the word world and they'll say, oh, that's just talking about the elect. They'll look at the word all and they'll try to play some Greek on you like they're a Greek scholar. Well, that really doesn't appear uh, in, the, in the Greek. Or are you a Greek scholar? Well, no. So they'll redefine all. They'll redefine. Yeah, I had a, a Calvinist tell me one time, whosoever really doesn't appear in the Bible. That's what he told me. It does, so whosoever doesn't appear in the Bible. Uh, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's not in Romans 10, 13. That's just right. I'm looking at it, but that's a figment of my imagination, right? It, it, it just gets, I'm sorry, it gets more stupid, you know, uh, uh, down the road. Isaiah, I'm going to read this for you. Isaiah 
chapter 53, and uh, verse number 6. Isaiah, I think this is it right here. Oh, I got it right here. Isaiah chapter 53, and verse number 6 says, All, A-L-L, <laughs> all we like sheep have gone astray. Who's he talking about? All we like sheep have gone astray. Everybody. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's that word, A-L-L. All means all, and that's all all means. There is no such thing as irresistible or efficacious grace. You don't find that in the Bible. It is not there, folks. It is not there. Calvinists, they love to limit God's attributes in this area. And these Calvinists, they love to treat the Bible like it's some mystical hidden book that only the enlightened can. You can't understand it, Tom. You can't understand it, Chrissy. You can't understand. You're not part of the enlightened ones. God reveals it to us, the educated. I got a verse for that one right there, too. I got Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the? Not the educated. Not the enlightened. The naive. The simple. So much for the so-called enlightened ones. What's this irresistible grace? There's T. There's U. L. Now I. Irresistible grace. Many of you remember John Asprey. Remember? Oh, I I love Brother John. I know he went home to be with the Lord. He always loved our Bible prophecy conferences at Gribbet. He always talked with me, him and Fran, about Bible prophecy. But Brother John Asprey was asked about irresistible grace. You know what he said? And I'm going to quote him. This is what he said. It was irresistible the night I found it. <laughs> wow, that can preach all day right there. It was irresistible the night I found it. Calvinists would say, it's impossible to resist the grace of God. They say, you can't do it. One Calvinist said this, I believe in free will, but that free will had nothing to do with my salvation. That, that's contradictory right there. That makes no sense whatsoever. He believes, Brother Tom, he believes that his salvation was efficacious or irresistible grace that saved them, that one day I was just sitting down and boom, I'm saved. That's what, that's what they believe. God just comes out of nowhere. No belief, no repentance, no nothing. You're just sitting at the Bible and boom, oh man, I'm saved. That doesn't work that way. doesn't work that way. I couldn't resist the grace at that time. Chris, how many times have I resisted you? At work, 1988, when you kept on coming at me, and I kept on telling you, I don't, I'm not interested. I don't want nothing to do with this. Leave me alone. How many times have I resisted? Until one day you personalized John 3.16 with me. April 22nd, 1988, 10.49 a.m. On a Thursday morning. <laughs> at work, quarantine room, yeah. And right there, I, 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 I repented of my sins. And by faith, I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and personal Savior. So what this guy is saying doesn't make sense. And that would also contradict Matthew 23, 37. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's weeping over the city of Jerusalem. What is he saying? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen would gather her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Sounds like resistance to me. John 5.40, what did Jesus say? And you would not come to me that you would have eternal life. But then, <laughs> look at, we, we already saw John 5.40, but if you cannot resist the grace of God, what do you do with Acts 7.51? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always <laughs> resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. So yes, man can resist God. Man can resist the will of God. Man can resist the Holy Spirit. Man's resisting God's invitation to come to him. So these passages show God's grace can be resisted by 
sinful men. God's pleading for man to come to him for salvation is a farce in Calvinism. In the words of the late, remember Dave Hunt? I actually read Proverbs 1, 24 and 25. Because I have called, and ye, sounds like resistance to me, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. As the late Dave Hunt, he's the one who wrote that book, A Woman Rides the Beast, this is what he said about these Calvinists. The elect don't need them, and the non-elect can't heed them. The elect don't need them, and we don't need faith, repentance. That's, that's not even biblical. And the non-elect can't heed them. So he hit it right on the very nose. So yes, man can resist the grace of God. Listen, if God has destined people to go to heaven and destined the rest of the world to go to hell, then why would Paul tell us this in 2 Corinthians 5.11? Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we, well, if man's destined to go to heaven and men destined to go to hell, why should we be persuading people? Why? Right. Why should we, Tom, why should we be going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature if God has already set it in, in stone? The elect on their way to heaven, the rest are going to hell. Why? Persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. That's why Pastor Tony pushes the strive to reach five every day. That's why this church is supporting missionaries, including myself, out there, going to Israel, sharing the gospel with Jews and at why we're persuading them that not only is Jesus the Messiah, but one day this world will experience the terror of the Lord in the form of a seven-year period of tribulation. That if you don't repent of your sin now and by faith trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're either going to be left behind after the rapture and then end up dying and going to hell for the rest of eternity. So yes, we do persuade men. The judgment of God's wrath on earth is coming during a seven-year period of tribulation. Heaven is real and hell is hot. If the elect is going to be saved no matter what, and the non-elect are hell-bound no matter what, then why would David say in the Psalms to go forth weeping and bearing precious seed? Right? Psalm 125, verses 5. Why, why go forth weeping and bearing precious seed if the elect are on their way to heaven and the non-elect are going to hell? By the way, if that's even true, what are we even doing here today? Why, why even have that book? Why, what am I even doing behind this pulpit? It's already set in stone, so why don't we just sit back and wait for the fireworks to start? I mean, come on, man. It make, that just makes no sense whatsoever. Obviously, <clears throat> from Scripture, man can resist grace, but man cannot resist the judgment of God. Listen, listen to me very carefully, especially all of you watching via live stream. Grace is offered. It's unmerited favor, amen? Grace is offered. Judgment is imposed. It's not the other way around. Are you with me? Grace isn't imposed. It's offered. It's unmerited favor. Grace is offered. Judgment is imposed. It is not the other way around. Finally, P, the perseverance of the saints. What is this perseverance of the saints? To me, Brother Tom, it's nothing more than a works salvation. Because according to Calvinists, you must keep preserving in order to stay saved. Perseverance of the saints produces no security at all. And these reformed guys love using Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 5. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Obviously, that is a verse that supports eternal security. I believe in eternal security. 
When you are saved, you are sealed unto the day of salvation. John 10, 20 and 29. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. John uh, 1 Timothy 1.12, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I have known whom I have believed, and I persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed, I committed, not he, I committed unto him against that day. 1 Peter 1.5, Who are kept by the power of God, not August Rosado, the power of God unto faith, ready to be revealed in the last time. Revelation 3.5 contains a double negative in the Greek, if you were to read it in the literal Greek, it would say, I will by no means blot out his name. Calvinists take that out of proportion and say, well, that means you've got to persevere in order for your name to stay in the book of it. That's not what it is talking about, ladies and gentlemen. That's not even talking about that at all. How do we overcome the world? Because we persevere? No, this is how we overcome the world. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our. Has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with our faith in Him. Who is He that overcometh the world, but He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? How do we overcome? Because of Jesus Christ. How do we overcome? Our salvation is sealed in him. It has nothing to do with the perseverance of August Nelson Rosado Jr. It has nothing to do with me at all. But it has everything to do with him. So the perseverance of the, of the saints is absolutely false doctrine. Calvinists interpret this as believers. You ready for this? This is going to knock your socks off here. Calvinists interpret this as that believers can never backslide. There's no such thing as a backslidden believer because we, per, we, we persevere in our deportment, in our behavior. That's like saying we never sin after salvation. You want to know what else they say? You ready for this one? There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. That's what they said. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Well, I just happened to dig up 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. I was just at Corinth a month ago, the ancient ruins of Corinth in Greece. For ye are yet carnal. <laughs> they say there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Paul says you're carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Don't tell me there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. The Bible says there is. I'm going to shock all of you tonight. Do you want to know who said he was carnal? Paul the Apostle. He's not, he's not going to heaven? Paul didn't persevere? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So don't tell me there's no such thing, folks, as a carnal Christian, because there is. Dr. Zane Hodges said this. If the genuineness of a man's faith can only be determined by the life that follows it, perseverance, assurance of salvation becomes impossible at the moment of salvation. So if I have to, if I have to persevere, what comfort do I have? Because if I just mess up once, did I lose my salvation? Am I on my way to hell? Well, you've got to figure in there 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Nobody can send themselves out of a relationship with God, Dr. Zane Hodges hit it right on the nose. Let me give an example. When my three daughters were born, Tiffany, Amanda, and Rebecca, the moment they were born, I became their father. Nothing in the world 
can change that relationship that I am their father, they are my daughters. The fact that I am their father is not conditioned upon their behavior. No matter how they act, I will always be their father. I will always love them. When they sin, yes, that can hinder our relationship, but that in no way changes the fact that they are my daughters and I am their father. No believer can send themselves out of a relationship with God, and that's why we have 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9 there. We are not saved because we persevere. We are saved because we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And another thing I reject about Calvinism, I reject this lordship salvation. I reject it. We reject lordship salvation where they say, in order for you to be saved, you must make Jesus Christ your Lord. How can I make him something that he already is? Before I got saved, he was already Lord. Before the world even came into existence, he was already Lord. How can I make him something that he or I submit to his lordship? Amen? I submit to his lordship, but I don't make him Lord. He is already Lord. So that leads these Calvinists to nothing more than Armenian insecurity. That if you don't persevere... You can lose your salvation. They're teaching that in these hyper-charismatic circles, pretty much calling God a liar. When Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, do a word study on eternal, please. What does eternal mean? You don't need a PhD to figure that one out. <clears throat> it means forever and forever and forever. We are sealed. Ephesians 4.30. We do a word study on seal. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. What is that day? The next main event we call the rapture of the church. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. Do not let these guys tell you you are ignorant. You are not the educated. You are not part of the enlightened ones. Don't let them tell you that God reveals these things only to us and not to you. Because we're the educated. We are the enlightened ones. Again, that would contradict what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the, the wise, the educated, the enlightened ones, and hast revealed them unto who? Babes. Psalm 19, 7, making wise simple. Jesus said, I've hid these things from the wise, the educated, the prudent, and I revealed them unto the I revealed them unto the naive. Listen to me. Jesus Christ called 12 Jewish fishermen. He did not call six Pharisees and six Sadducees. He called 12 uneducated Jewish fishermen. And what did he say? Follow me. You've got to be careful with this kind of doctrine that's being circulated in the church today. In closing, why? Calvinism stifles evangelism, makes God the author of sin, since man doesn't have a choice in the matter. All this evil in the world, murders, rapes, sodomy, well, God must be responsible for that. Man can't be because he has no choice in the matter. So they make God the author of sin, makes God's love selective and arbitrary, makes God himself to be some sort of a cosmic monster in the heavenlies. Folks, listen, we must study to be astute students of the word of God in the areas of soteriology, salvation, and in the doctrines of eschatology, Bible prophecy. We must look at the scriptures for their grammatical, historical, contextual, and literal interpretation. We must study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Why? Jesus Christ is coming again. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. His coming is so very soon. 
that's the reason why we must go out there and do what Paul said, persuade men. The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's anathema in Calvinism. That's anathema with this tulip acronym. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is not only the job of the pastor, it is the job of every true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, salvation is sufficient for all, but efficient for those who call upon the name of the Lord. So I reject 100% all five points of Calvinism, but I am a five-pointer. I'm going to shock all of you. I am a five-pointer. And I believe in these five points. B-I-B-L-E. That's my five-pointer right there. August Rosado is a five-pointer. B-I-B-L-E. The other five points, throw it in the trash. Jesus Christ is coming again. And it could be at any moment at any time. Let's weed out the nonsense, weed out the false doctrine, and let's study to show ourselves approved unto God. The shofar is going to sound. Amen. Trumpet's going to sound. The dead in Christ is going to rise for us. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds right, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And yet we are told to comfort, comfort one another with these words. You've got some Christians that will try to put you in the tribulation period, man. We are not there. Between chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, there is no mention of the church being on the earth at all. The church is mentioned 19 times before Revelation 14, 2, six times after Revelation 19, 11, in between, not there. Why? church was raptured before, pre, before the commencement of that 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, a.k.a. a future seven-year period of tribulation. That's why I like toot my own horn. That's why I like blowing my shofar, amen, to remind everyone that the real shofar from heaven will sound. And when it does, we are out of here. Until then, let's win the lost at any cost, amen. Come up hither faster. You can blink the human eye. Bye bye, man. We're out, brother Chris. We are gone. And he's going to take us to the Father's house. And we will be with him. For that brief seven years in heaven. And then when it's all said and done, come back with him on white horses back to planet earth, to the city of Jerusalem for the 1,000-year millennial kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need to get saved now. If not, you will be left behind after that event to go through that seven years. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I know that that was a lot of information tonight, Lord. And Father, as a finite individual, I can only do so much, Lord. I can only say so much, only preach so much, Lord. But based on what Paul said in Ephesians 3.20, that you can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Father, we're asking tonight that everything that was said, everything that was preached, that the Holy Spirit of God would use that, Lord, to speak to hearts not only here tonight, but those that are watching on both live streams, our live stream, the church's live stream, and maybe there might be someone involved in this false teaching of Calvinism, Lord, and this heresy that has been destroying churches all over the country, that someone would come out of that, Lord, and get to know the Jesus of Scripture, 
not that Jesus made up in the minds of men. And so, Father, may you now be glorified during this invitation in everything that is said and done here today. Be with Patty, Lord. Just give her grace and strengthen her, Lord. She's not feeling well tonight. Just heavy hand upon her. We continue to pray, uh, pray for uh, Betty LaRoche as she continues treatment, dear Lord, and for the colon cancer. She seems to be doing very well with that now. And many others, dear Lord, going through health issues. You know who they are, Lord. Be with Pastor Tony and Dawn as they have a much-needed vacation out there in Pensacola. And just praying that your hand be upon them right now. And, Lord, continue to help East Bay Baptist Church to continue to be a light and a beacon to the people of East Providence, the surrounding areas, to diminish the various ministries here. And, Lord, help us to be soul winners, to share the gospel with everybody we come in contact with that we would persuade men because of what is to come. The terror of the Lord, the judgment of God. So, Father, be glorified now in everything that is said and done here today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.